Okay, I, I've had a couple comments that my handout is kind of long and I haven't gotten very far. That's because this is, I tricked you. We're really going to be here till midnight tonight. <laughs> uh, but actually, um, it's, for the, it's for both nights. So next Sunday night, we're doing part two. And so we're just going to go as far as we can tonight and then uh, we'll let you out at eight tonight and then next week cover the rest of it if we can. <laughs> Um, that's okay. I want to cover what we do can cover well, and uh, I've spent a little bit of extra time on these prophecies because they're so important and they're so uplifting, and they're and they're good. Um, it's it's important. Prophecies is such. I, I like I said earlier, it's just such a powerful testimony and witness to the accuracy and reliability of scriptures. Um, so the Old Testament prophets were very clear that uh, Christ was coming, and Many of their prophecies were literally fulfilled and many yet to be literally fulfilled. Well, Jesus himself spoke of prophecies too. And uh, so the second top 10 reason, and these are going to move quicker, I I think, I hope, uh, after this. But the prophecies take a little more time to get through. So uh, the teaching of Christ demands it. Jesus has to return to earth because he said so. If he doesn't return, he would be a liar. But... um, his prophecies are just as good as those Old Testament prophets, even better. And he told the high priest uh, shortly before his crucifixion, he said in Mark 14, 62, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty bold. That's very straightforward that Jesus Christ is coming again. He said so himself. He said it 21 times. And if he didn't, he would be a liar. Well, we can just think back to some of his prophecies that did come true. Uh, you think about his first coming in Matthew 26, 24 to 25. We have a prophecy that one of you at this table will betray me, right? And shortly afterwards, in that same chapter, we have the betrayal of Jesus by his disciple, his pseudo disciple Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You remember that? Well, he also prophesied in Matthew 26 about Peter's denial. Before the night is over, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And in that same chapter, in Matthew 26, he denied Jesus three times by the second cock crow. Matthew 16 and 17 and 20, on multiple occasions, he prophesied that he would suffer, be killed, and rise on the third day. And the testimony is clear from all the chapters of the four Gospels that he did suffer and was killed and rose again on the third day. In Luke 24, 49, and just before he ascended to heaven in Acts 1, 8, he prophesied of a coming helper, and that is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus prophesied, uh, it's better for me to go to heaven because I will send a helper to you, and, and he did. He sent the Holy Spirit. And lastly, this one's interesting. Uh, the fulfillment is not in the scripture, but uh, we know it did happen from history. Luke 21, verses 20 to 24, he prophesies that the, that the city that was thought, and the temple that was thought so beautiful by his disciples would be destroyed. And uh, in AD 70, Roman general Titus laid waste to the city of Jerusalem. Not one stone was left upon another. The destruction of Jerusalem. So, Uh, just as his prophecies came true, he has prophecies that he made that haven't come to pass yet. And so just like those Old Testament prophets, Jesus prophesied about his coming. He said in John 14, and if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a great prophecy. It's a, it's a comforting prophecy. Jesus personally said, if I go and prepare a place for you, and it's really that if is an implied if, it's since I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a great prophecy. Matthew 24, 15 prophesies in 21, 22. Really, the whole chapter of Matthew 24 is very uh, key and central to prophecy. And we read about um, a world leader, an antichrist, and a great tribulation. So there, we get that there in Matthew 24. Also in that same chapter, Matthew 24, one last one, uh, he prophesies of his coming and great power and glory. His coming and great power and glory. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 to 32 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That's a pretty great promise there. And, And he goes on to say, All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Matthew 16, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and that he will reward each according to his works. So, the one question here, uh, yeah, I had those verses, but I uh, didn't flip to them fast enough. Okay, here's a good question. Has the tribulation occurred, the, math, the great tribulation of Matthew 24, has it occurred yet? You know, some theologians say, yes, it did occur in the first century. In that time, in AD 70, when Jerusalem was laid to waste, um, the Nero, the Caesar at the time, Nero uh, was the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation, and this great tribulation, uh, this holocaust on the Jews that he brought to them because of their rebellion, he, he killed, literally killed thousands of them. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, um, I have a, a, conden- a smaller condensed version of one of his larger works. It's just called Thrones of Blood. And you read in there, and there's just such great carnage and just terrible atrocities that happened under Nero to the Jewish people. But was it the great tribulation? I would say not. Um, Matthew 24, 21 says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Nor ever shall be. Think about what happened in World War II to the Jews. And and really there's a lot of other history with the Jews and, and terrible times of tribulation. But in our past century, this is one we can relate to because of people we know. You, go, you can go over to Germany today and see the memorials and the markers as a tribute to the Holocaust. And six million Jews are reported to have been killed under Nazi Germany in World War II. I would say that if, you know, maybe the time of Nero was pretty horrible, and I'm sure it was, but uh, I don't know if it could have been the Great Tribulation since, you know, we have recent history here that shows such a terrible Holocaust for the Jews. We've got Hitler there and, a, and Jews in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, you know what? The tribulation and, and revelation is described to come upon the whole world. And uh, when you think about the, if you go through the chapters of Revelation and you see the amount of suffering and death, just half the world's population wiped out um, through the tribulation. I don't, I don't think we've been through the great tribulation yet, even as bad of times as we've had. There's another interesting verse in Matthew uh, 24, 34. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. 
And so some theologians might say, well, all these things have to take place before this generation here that Jesus was speaking to dies out. Um, but because of we haven't seen the a great tribulation on the scale of what the Bible speaks about, um, I think the generation he's speaking to would be the generation that goes through those events whenever it happens. So it could ha- it's going to happen sometime, and that generation is going to go through that. All right, now these are going to go a little quicker here. Top 10 reasons why Jesus Christ must return. The testimony of the Holy Spirit demands it. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is in the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. Um, God, who cannot lie, Titus 1-2, promises Christ's return through the writings of the apostles. And the apostles and the writers of the New Testament were moved by the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. So it's the Holy Spirit's testimony through the apostles. They wrote with their own experiences and backgrounds and writing styles, but it was the Holy Spirit supernaturally guiding them to write just what God intended. And they wrote about the coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote, uh, mentioned the coming of Christ 50 times himself in his 13 letters of the New Testament. So you have a lot of prophecy in the New Testament, testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, the testimony of angels demands it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with an author named Clarence Larkin. He is he, he in the early 1900s, but he was famous for uh, writing books and drawing a lot of prophecy charts. He published a book that had like 90, 95 prophecy charts in it, and he's got other books out there. And Clarence, just Google Clarence Larkin charts, L-A-R-K-I-N, and you'll have a good time looking at prophecy charts. It's all on Google now, all over. Um, and one of the things he mentioned in his book on the second coming was the testimony of the angels demands his coming. In Acts 1, 9 through 11, and this is when Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the testimony of the angels is that Jesus is coming back, just as he was seen going up visibly, bodily, personally into heaven, he will come back visibly, uh, personally, bodily, back to the earth again. The angels said so. All right, next reason. Christ must return because the program for the church demands it. The program for the church demands it. Acts fifteen fourteen says that God's taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, and, and he's gathering together his elect into one great body, the church. And, and the church is a, is a picture in the Bible of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. And he's coming back for his bride. He's going to claim her. And in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul uses this wedding imagery. And he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Isn't that neat? The church is to be the bride of Christ. And and there's other great passages about Christ's love and care for his church in Matthew 25 and Ephesians 5. I had a great chance to speak on that about a year ago here at the church on Ephesians 5 and and how the husband-wife relationship is to be a, a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Our marriage relationships are to be a picture of that. And and they're certainly imperfectly a picture of that now, but, uh, but that's the goal. That's, a, that's what we strive for because um, Christ said so. He's given that to be a symbol of that. All right, the corruption in the world demands it. 
And, and I talked a little bit about that when we talked about the sovereignty of God, that he's in control. The corruption in the world demands it. Here we have a verse in John chapter 5. It says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so there's a blessed hope for the believer. And a part of that is that we have a resurrection of life, but also that there's a resurrection of judgment for the evil in the world. One day, the evil that seems to be going on unchecked in our world today will be brought under the judgment of God. And so Christ must return to execute that judgment. All right, the future of Israel demands it. Uh, Again, some theologians say there's no future for Israel. The church has replaced Israel in the program of God and in the Bible. We we don't teach that here. Um, That's called replacement theology, something like that. But anyways, Israel has a place, a real place. The national ethnic Israel has a place in the future of this world. In Paul's day, Gentiles were coming into the church in greater numbers than Jewish converts. And in Romans 11, in Romans 11, which is written to a Gentile audience, he reminds them, reminds the Gentiles, that you were a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, verse 17. But the time is coming when the natural branches will be grafted back into the olive tree. And so that's kind of a paraphrased version of those verses there, but so the natural branches are who? In this olive tree example, they're... It's Israel, right? And they rejected their Messiah. So he grafted in um, among them the Gentiles. And he's saying they, they were grafted in. You Gentiles were a wild olive tree and you were grafted in. And you became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree of Jesus Christ. And, and, but the time is coming when the natural branches will be grafted back into the olive tree. And so this pro- prophecy here demands the fulfillment of a future national, ethnic Israel, um, which, which it was exciting for the world, for those who look at Bible prophecy in, in 1948 when they were regathered as a nation. And one day they, they will, uh, there will be a day when Israel uh, will be ruled by their Messiah and, they, and the, the earth will be ruled through the Messiah through national Israel. So that, that's neat. That's great to think about. The future of Israel demands his return. Um, the destruction of Satan demands it. The destruction of Satan demands it. Satan, he's, he's already a defeated foe in one sense, uh, as far as Christians are con- con- concerned, but he, but he still exercises a, kind of a dominion over the world right now. He's called the God of this age in the Bible. But Christ is the only rightful ruler of the world. And when he returns, he's going to overthrow and destroy Satan completely. And that's in, clear in the end of the book of Revelation and Revelation 19 and 20. Satan is bound up for a thousand years, cast into an abyss during the millennial period, and then uh, released to lead a final rebellion at which the fire of God comes down from heaven and destroys Satan and the enemies of God, and he is cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So Christ must return because the destruction of Satan demands it. Uh, the, The hope of the saints, the hope of the saints demands his return because only the glorious future return of Christ can bring about the hope that every believer longs for, which is uh, to be delivered from the sin and evil in ourselves and in this world, and Christ must return. That's our great hope. 
uh, and he will glorify us. He'll give us glorified bodies, the scripture says. So uh, we, we look forward to that. And then John says, everyone who has this hope in him uh, purifies himself just as he is pure. So, that, so in, in closing of these 10 uh, reasons why Jesus must return, do these reasons have an impact on your life? Do they change the way you think about your life and the way you're going to live the rest of your life? It should have a changing effect on you, uh, realizing these things. It should have a purifying effect on you. And just ask the question, are you eager? Are you watchful for the return of Christ? Um, hopefully these reasons give you confident expectation and hope he is coming again, and he is. Okay, I said top 10 reasons, uh, but there's a number 11. Sorry, I can't stop at 10 sometimes. Top 11 reasons Christ must return, and this one is neat. This also came from my buddy Clarence Larkin in his second coming book. The testimony of the Lord's Supper demands it. The testimony of the Lord's Supper demands it. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul wrote, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You know? Lord's Supper, the communion, the bread and the cup, uh, it's not a permanent memorial. And uh, it'll be discontinued when the Lord returns. It's a memorial feast. It looks back to the cross. It remembers the Lord's suffering and death on the cross for our sins. But you know, it also looks forward to his coming, right? He says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes through the bread and the cup. So it's, uh, it's neat. When we do that, when we take the bread and the cup, um, it reminds us, uh, it reminds us that he is the bride coming back for his, uh, he's the bridegroom coming back for his bride. And uh, so we proclaim his death till he comes. All right. How will Jesus return? How will he return? It's good to think about. How is Jesus going to come back to the earth? Well, first of all, it's going to be sudden. The Bible's clear that he's going to come back suddenly. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's going to be suddenly. James 5, 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So at hand, it's, it could come at any time. Secondly, it's personal. He says in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So the Lord himself personally is coming back to the earth suddenly. And third, it's visible and bodily. Listen to a few scriptures here. Jesus says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24.27 how is lightning? When you see lightning, right? We might have seen some earlier today. It was visible. It was, it was right there. You couldn't mistake it. You couldn't miss it. That's how the second coming of Christ will be. It'll be very visible and bodily to the whole world. No one will miss it. We haven't missed it. He hasn't come yet. Acts 1, and, while the, and the angels' verses again. And they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from heaven into you will so come in like manner as you saw him going to heaven. So how did Jesus go up? He, he went up and he was seen leaving in a cloud, right? And we're told in Matthew he will return in the clouds. Uh, he left in a real resurrection body. He's going to come back in a real body. 
When he left, people saw him leave. It was very visible in public. When he comes back, people will see him. Revelation 1.7, every eye will see him. And it was Jesus himself who went up to heaven, and they said the same Jesus will come back. So it's sudden, it's personal, it's visible and bodily. Um, that's just great to be reminded of, you know, that Jesus Christ is coming back like that. Uh, okay, this is not very bright, but uh, that just kind of goes through the things I was just saying. How did he go and how will he come? As he went up, the same way he will come again. Okay, activity for you. Imminent or not imminent? Imminent. What does imminent mean? Yeah, imminent. Yeah, it could happen at any time, right? Okay, so as you look at the activity there, is it imminent or not imminent? Could he come at any time or is there signs before it or something that has to happen before he comes again? So if you look at that first one on the sheet there, Matthew 24, 42 to 44, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So would that give you the idea of eminency or not eminent? Signs. Eminent, yeah, that's obvious. Okay, so I'm going to give you a few minutes here and just kind of go down that sheet there and put a check mark in the imminent or waiting for signs boxes. Okay, well, let's, let's start going through them. That's okay if you're not done. Um, so we did that first one, watch therefore, for he's coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, Mark 13, 32 to 33. It's kind of a similar verse. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Take heed and watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. That would obviously be imminent. Yep, imminent. He could come at any time. Okay, and the next one, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So would you say that? Not eminent. Signs, yep, we need to wait for signs. Okay. Uh, in Mark 13, also parallel passages in the other gospels say, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Signs, yep, we're waiting for signs on that one. Okay, Second Thessalonians 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, yeah, that'd be signs. We're waiting for the man of perdition, otherwise known as the Antichrist. All right, Philippians 3.20. How about that one? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that'd be imminent. We're not waiting for signs. We're not looking for anything else. We're just looking for Jesus. Yep, 
imminent. All right, Mark 13. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Yeah, be, be signs, right? Because we've got these cosmic disturbances that have to happen before he comes back. Okay, 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Eminent, yes. Yes, at hand. Watchful in your prayers. Okay, James 5, 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren. And uh, I won't read the whole thing, but what is... It says here in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Eminent, yep, eminent. Okay, one last one, 1 John 2, 28. Now little children abide in him that when he appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That, that has to be imminent, because if we knew when he was coming, we wouldn't be ashamed at his coming, because we'd prepare for it, right? Okay, good. So, do you sense a, an apparent contradiction there, right? Uh, some of the verses about his coming say that he could be coming at any time, and to be ready for that, and be watchful for that, because his coming is at hand. And other verses say there's going to be these cosmic disturbances, and there's going to be this man of perdition, the Antichrist, rising up that come before he comes. So what do you do with this apparent contradiction in prophecy? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, there's four possible solutions that people say. Uh, first one is that Christ could not come at any time, that these signs have to occur before he could come back. Uh, they redefine imminency to mean something else. And uh, unfortunately, that kind of dampens the expectation, doesn't it? When he says, be ready and watch, I'm coming at an hour you do not expect, that kind of dampens that expectation. So that's... Kind of say right to that one. All right, number two, Christ could come at any time. Could come at any time, and that would be with, uh, and this is really the view we hold here, with two distinct returns of Christ. So in the second coming, there's two phases of it. We hear about this great tribulation period before his coming, right? So uh, we also have those scriptures that say it's imminent, that it could come at any time. That's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. And so the believers will be caught up uh, as First Thessalonians four sixteen and 17 say, to be with the Lord, uh, to be spared from that tribulation period, and then he returns down to the earth in the second phase of his second coming. So the, the signs will occur before his second coming down to earth, yet his coming is imminent for the believer today. Um, okay, third, and, th- and that was the idea kind of popularized by John Nelson Darby in England. Okay, all the signs have been fulfilled so Christ could return at any moment. So those people will say, uh, you know, these signs and troubles. And, and what they have to do is spiritualize some of them. You know, the cosmic disturbances and different things. They kind of allegorize them, spiritualize them, tie them into history somewhere. Um, but they say the signs have all been fulfilled so Christ's coming is imminent. He could return at any moment. Um, so it's true that in some sense the gospel was preached to all nations uh, false prophets arose and opposed the gospel. There was a great tribulation and the persecution the church suffered at the hands of the Roman emperors and, and maybe you could have called him the Antichrist. Um, and so, but, but when you think about those things, I, I'm not convinced that those things occurred on the scale the Bible prophecy speaks of. When you read of these cosmic disturbances, when you read of the great tribulation in Matthew 24 and in Revelation, these things just seem so much greater and worldwide than anything we have ever seen before. All right, I don't think Nero was the Antichrist. Fourthly, um, and this is my buddy John, uh, uh, Wayne Grudem, 
Uh, I love his systematic theology book, but uh, I'm not in total agreement on this particular point. He says, it is unlikely but possible that the signs have already been fulfilled, so we don't know with certainty if the signs have been fulfilled or not. So it's unlikely but possible. So Christ's coming is imminent, but you know there may or may not be signs yet to be fulfilled. Well, I kind of see that as like taking both sides of the issue at the same time. You know, is it imminent or are we waiting for signs? It's kind of, you know, we don't know for sure is kind of what I get from that. All right. So think through me. And you can't really see the cartoon too well, I'm sorry. But one guy's saying, holding up a sign that says, the end is near. And the other guy is saying, the end is far. <laughs> uh, okay, so signs occurred or yet future. Think about this. Has, the signs talked about in the Bible are the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Okay? Would you say that the preaching of the gospel has occurred to all nations? I, there are still languages out there that have not, the Bible hasn't been translated into and have no witness for Christ. I would kind of highly doubt that that's been truly preached to all nations. You know, with today's technology and Wycliffe, Bible translators are doing a great work in remote places around the world with satellite technology speeding up their work but they're still working hard because there's a lot of language groups and peoples who have not been reached with the word of God yet. It hasn't been preached to all nations. All right, another sign is the great tribulation. I've kind of talked about that already. You know, there's been lots of periods of great suffering on the earth. Um, if anything could have been called the great tribulation, the Holocaust would have been it, I think. Um, maybe others too. But, uh, you know, and really for some believers in the world who are being beheaded for their testimony of Christ in Iraq and other places, they might hear me say, talk about the great tribulation and they'd be like great tribulation what could be more tribulation than this <laughs> you know but the great tribulation spoke of in the bible is a worldwide tribulation on a global scale all right so i don't think that sign has occurred yet either false christs and false prophets are part of the signs well there's been a lot of people in history who have claimed to be christ um they've been delusional um there's been reports from missionaries about witchcraft and demonic activity that oppose their work. But I don't think that's been on the scale as what the Bible talks about either. Um, I can remember in school in 1993, there was the stories of that man named David Koresh. You, you remember that? It, it, they put Channel One in our schools about that time, and so we got to watch all the unfolding of the events. And uh, he was from a, a, a splinter group of the Seventh-day Adventists, and they're called the Branch Davidians and based in Waco, Texas. And he kind of eventually weaseled his way up into the hierarchy of the whole thing. And he claimed to be a messianic figure um, who was setting up the Davidic kingdom. You know, he, I don't know if he exactly said he was Christ, but a messianic type of figure. And he was, but he said he was setting up the Davidic kingdom. Um, but th just think about the prophecies about the kingdom, that it would be an everlasting kingdom. And it would be one of peace and righteousness. Well, we know how his kingdom ended, right? There was after a 51-day standoff with the FBI, there was a two-hour shootout, and then David and 79 of his followers died in a fire that started during the conflict uh, with the FBI. Not the Christ. There'll be lots of false Christs and prophets rising up. But even though there's been lots of them, I don't think there has been one yet that has risen up on the level that the Bible prophesies about the Antichrist. He will deceive all the nations, all the nations. All right. How about powerful signs in the heavens? I don't know. Unless you spiritualize them or allegorize them away, I'd say they haven't happened. It's kind of obvious. 
All right, Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And, you know, some will spiritualize that away to the nation of Israel and such, and, but, you know, if you read it literally like we do here, they haven't occurred. Appearance of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this man. And, you know, we had those ancient Roman emperors, Nero and Domitian, who severely persecuted the Christians, and they, they claimed deity for themselves. But uh, we've also had others. We've, we've had Adolf Hitler. We've had Joseph Stalin. We've had several different popes of the Catholic Church that have been accused of being the Antichrist um, and other popular identifications. And I, and I would say that there's a lot of Antichrists out there, small a. John talks about that in his epistles. There's a lot of Antichrists in the world. But not uh, on the scale. The, the man of lawlessness that's described in the Bible, the Antichrist, is on a world level, bringing an unparalleled rule and suffering um, to the people of the earth. So I would say no. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And you look in Revelation, and, and when Revelation mentions the beast, that's this man of lawlessness, and we haven't seen a world ruler on that level yet. Um, you know, I was thinking, though, if we were to have a world, world ruler, uh, that's certainly going to be terrible for, to, for the world to go through his rulership. But immediately following that, we're going to have a dictator again. You know, and, and it's going to be great. Uh, what this world really needs is a dictator, one dictator, a perfect one, who will rule in righteousness and peace, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we look forward to that. Um, and then the salvation of Israel. Romans 9 to 11 talks about a massive conversion of Jewish people, a regathering of the people spiritually. So it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Some do individually, but not. In the Bible, prophecy in one place says a third of Israel will be saved, a third of Israel. So we haven't seen that kind of uh, sign. So the return of Christ is imminent, right? It, there's not, we're not looking for signs. We're not looking for events in the world to happen first. We're just looking for Christ. We're looking for him to return. That's our expectation. So we need to be watchful and live our lives that, as if he could return at any moment. Okay, I've got a little bit of time left. So I'm going to delve a little bit into this and continue it into next week, next Sunday night from 6 to 8. This gets a little bit more chartish and timeline-ish as we get into it. And it's kind of fun. And I, I really enjoy this, this part of it here. We talk about the millennium. Christ's rule on the earth, the millennium. People have dreamed of a golden age on the earth for a long time, haven't they? Uh, people have, uh, you know, politicians try to make deals to make it better and more like that. Uh, people write songs about it, movies about it. It's just in our culture. People kind of have this longing for a utopia almost, someday, somehow, and we never seem to be able to get there. But um, I want to help you understand uh, the Bible's teaching in Revelations 19 to 21. And where very clearly we're told that there is going to be a 1,000-year period on this earth called the millennium uh, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign over the earth, followed by a new heavens and new earth. 
So first of all, let's take a step uh, back and look at the picture of the end of Revelation. These are the seven last things. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. David McLeod at Emmaus, wrote a book uh, about 10 years ago called The Seven Last Things. It's a good one. Uh, and these are the seven last things. You just read your Bible. Uh, it's very straightforward if you read it with a literal reading, a chronological reading. These are the seven last things that happen. Jesus Christ returns to earth in full glory as King of kings and Lord of lords along with his saints. Secondly, Jesus defeats the Antichrist and casts him and the false prophet of the tribulation into the lake of fire. Third, the binding of Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. Fourth, the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. Fifth, the brief release of Satan and man's final rebellion with Satan then being cast into the lake of fire. Six, the last judgment and the end of the world by fire. And seventh, the new heavens and the new earth. That's good. That's, that's neat. Uh, we've got that all in the Bible. It's all told for us. Let's read together Revelation 20. Open your Bibles if you have them, or if it's printed in the notes, that's good too. I can't remember if I put them in there. Okay. Revelation 20, first 10 verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will, shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, first of all, how do we approach the book of Revelation? It's got a lot of symbolism in it, sometimes difficult to understand. But the problem's not with the message. It's with the interpreter of God's messages, if anything. Remember that God gave us prophecy to be understood so we could know what would happen beforehand. And in the beginning of Revelation, he said, Blessed and holy is he who reads these words and keeps them. So he wants us to read them, understand them, keep them in our minds and hearts, they're for us to be understood now. That's a great thing. Um, he's given us the exact words he wants. And, and we don't apologize or make any apology here at Creekside Church for reading these scriptures literally. You know, if, if you take another approach to Revelation, you can have a whole different scheme for end times views. And we'll look at a couple of, the, a couple of those briefly. But if you read through the passage literally um, in its context, in its history, how it was intended to be read and understood, um, you will come up with a straightforward understanding of these events at the end of Revelation. Um, God communicates to us in ordinary language so that we can understand him. 
I mean, for example, if I told you that I just saw three black and white geese out there on the church lawn, which you'd probably believe me, you would assume that I saw three, not five, black and white, not green and brown, geese, not deer, on the church lawn, not in a park. So you see my point there is that if, if God communicates to us in ordinary language so we can understand it. If, we, if he didn't use ordinary language communicating to us in an ordinary, normal way that we understand things, it would be very confusing and, and I think basically useless. And so we approach prophecy in the Bible in a literal way because he wants us to understand it. Uh, another figure of speech, we allow for figures of speech. We allow for symbolism, even in a literal approach. I mean, if I were to tell you I was in my backyard and as I... I there were millions of mosquitoes in my yard. You, you would instantly, here in Iowa, recognize that as a figure of speech, right? And you would know that I didn't actually take the time to count all the mosquitoes, but that there was just a lot of mosquitoes. So even when we read the Bible literally, uh, we still allow for obvious symbolism like that. And we do in Revelation. Uh, in the Iowa winter, someone says, I'm freezing, right? Well, we don't assume that their body temperature has actually dropped to 32 degrees, uh, we assume that it's just very cold out there. You know, so in Revelation, there's some obvious symbols and imagery, and sometimes we need help understanding them uh, beyond ourselves, but normally our approach is to read it literally in its immediate context and its history. And when it says he binds Satan for a thousand years and rules the reigns on the earth for a thousand years, we take that literally, and we expect Christ to come back and literally reign on the earth and his political kingdom. Um, you know, some of the obvious symbolism in Revelation 11 the Apostle John calls Jerusalem, he calls the city of Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt. Why does he call Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? That's not, that's not his name. It's, it's, it's symbolism to describe the spiritual and moral condition of the city uh, very graphically in our minds. When we think of Sodom, what do we think of? You know? And he's describing the sin, the culture of Jerusalem in that way. All right. So there's some different views of the millennium, and eh, we might just touch on one or two here before the end of tonight. Um, these are not, these are, I want to fairly and accurately, briefly represent the different views. And here's some of the other views um, that we wouldn't hold to here, but uh, nevertheless, many good Christians and brothers in Christ and authors do. Uh, one is called amillennialism. Now, when you put the A, the ah, before the word millennialism, what does the A do to it? When, when you take an ah something, you mean not, Right? Or no, it negates it, yeah. We have other words in the English language like that, right? Can you think of any? Like awe something that would say it's not that? Amoral, yes, amoral, right, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Atheist, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, you could probably think of some others if I gave you more time, but I won't. So, yeah, amillennial. That means there's no literal earthly kingdom of Jesus on the earth. And um, really how you interpret scripture depends on where you end up here because the amillennialists will uh, spiritualize and allegorize the events and, and they don't go chronologically and they don't go literally. And so you end up with a different approach. Um, they, they would say that we are in the millennial kingdom now. Um, that we're not looking forward to the millennial kingdom on earth because it's a spiritual kingdom. Christ's rule is in the hearts of believers today here on the earth or in the hearts of believers or through the saints in heaven now. And there's, I'm going to hold either view of that. So um, 
they still believe that Jesus Christ is going to return and that there'll be a resurrection and judgment and, an, and the eternal state, but there's not going to be a king on the earth and an earthly political kingdom. Um, so uh, that's amillennialism. There's a lot of good people that hold to that. R.C. Sproul, although I think he's trending, trending towards postmillennialism now, if I understand his writings right. J.I. Packer, Leon Morris, Anthony Holcomb, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, uh, other, a lot of Reformed theologians. You know, when the Reformation happened, it was kind of interesting. They, they broke away from so much of the baggage of the church at the time, and they, they clarified the doctrine of justification and Christ alone by faith and Christ alone, but they didn't get to the eschatology part of it, and they unfortunately kind of held on to the past of amillennialism, which was um, the church's position during the Dark Ages. Um, all right, so with amillennialism, I, I object to it, for different reasons. I would say that uh, our millennialism approach to the scripture is not consistent. First of all, they, they say that the prophecies of Christ's first coming were literally and fulfilled precisely. But then when they come to the prophecies of a second coming, they, they don't take them as literally or as precisely. They, they can spiritualize or allegorize them away. Um, regarding the binding of Satan, right? What do you do with that if you're an amillennialist? Well, um, I would say it's, obvious to everyone that Satan is very active in the world today from what we see. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say he's bound today. That's a problem for them. Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 4, 3 to 4 says that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not believe the gospel of Christ. So Satan is actively blinding the minds of those in the world today so they won't believe the gospel. So by saying that he's binding uh, it's just a restriction of Satan's ability to deceive the nations by keeping the gospel from them. That's what they say. It doesn't do justice to it. Because this language in Revelation 20 is very specific. It says that he's uh, cast into an abyss and, and he's sealed up. That sounds like to me that he doesn't have any influence on the world during that time. Um, and then he's released to deceive the nations. So I, I just don't... I just don't get it. Um, as far as spiritualizing a thousand years, what do they do with a thousand years? That number is mentioned six times in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20. There will be this thousand year period. Well, what do they do with that? Well, um, they symbolically take it to communicate an idea that it, um, the Messiah's kingdom is a, is a complete period of time. And that's kind of what they have to do. A thousand is a number that means a, as a complete uh, fulfilled, fulfillment of time. Um, now, when you look at Book of Revelation, a lot of the numbers are very literal. You see 144,000 mentioned in Revelation 7. 144,000 Jews are sealed. 12,000 from each tribe. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 13, you see that 7,000 are killed in a great earthquake. Are we going to spiritualize numbers like that? Um, why would we interpret the number 1,000 differently than we would interpret numbers throughout the Book of Revelation? So, so we take it literally. Uh, when you just do a normal reading of the text, it tells you that there's two literal resurrections that are both physical. Um, but what the amillennialist has to do with that first resurrection is, is um, spiritualize it. Okay, that, that's, that's when the believer comes to life in Christ. So you, that's, that's a different approach to looking at Scripture. Um, good brothers in Christ hold to that, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but... Uh, there's some, there's some problems in our mind. All right, post-millennialism. This might be the, all the further we get tonight, and then we get to the good stuff next week, I guess. Um, this is another view that we don't hold to, uh, post-millennialism. So when you think of post-millennial, when is Christ coming? 
you think, okay, our millennial was, you know, no millennium on earth, but post-millennialism, Christ is coming when? After, post, after, right, okay. So Christ returns after the millennium in that view. So the millennium is, in their view, a result of a Christianized world. It's, they believe that the, the gospel is so powerful that the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will be so powerful that, that the world's population will become more and more Christian. And even the institutions and society and, and culture and society will become Christianized. And, and so we, in a sense, the saints, usher in the kingdom of Christ on the earth um, through, through our efforts. Um, one of their spokesmen, Lorraine Baitner, says that the, that view of last things, describing postmillennialism, it's that view of last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of, his Holy, of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals, that the world is eventually to be Christianized, and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness. So it's not necessarily a thousand years, it's just a long period. And peace, commonly called the millennium. The second coming of Christ will be followed immediately by the general resurrection, the general judgment, and the introduction of heaven and hell in their fullness. Uh, this view came up uh, shortly after the Reformation. Um, some of the people that hold to it, Gary DeMar, A.W. Pink, Charles Hodge, you'd have to kind of know your theology authors if you, you know. Um, some of the churches that would hold it, uh, some Puritan churches, some Reformed churches, some Presbyterians, some Methodists, some Baptists. I mean, you just kind of get a mix of different people in it. It is probably the least popular view out of the three views I'm presenting. And the primary characteristic of this view is that they're very optimistic about the power of the gospel to change the world. And, and that's true. You know, in one sense, we should be optimistic about the power of the gospel to reach into the darkness of this world and change lives. But it, it, and Jesus even said in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they, they would say that this great commission means that we have the power and authority of God to go out into the world and change the world, and it will become Christianized and bring in the kingdom. Um, they also look at the parable of the mustard seed, how you know, the smallest seed grows into this large tree, and that's the power of the gospel in our culture today. It's true, uh, in a sense. All right, so I object in some ways, though. Um, first of all, the world is not becoming more and more Christianized. Um, if two world wars were not enough to kill off this view, it certainly did diminish it quite a bit at the time. But you know, it's kind of getting rebirthed today a little bit. Um, there's some groups out there, there's, there's something called Kingdom Theology and um, some charismatic groups and others who are trying to bring about the kingdom through re- reforming our government and our institutions and the culture today. And so they, they are working hard to change the laws and make the, Christian, the society more Christian and, and to, or really to bring in an, in an effort to bring about the kingdom of God. And uh, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing to want to influence culture. We should. We are salt and light in the world. And, and God has put us in place in this world to be the moral preservatives of this world, to shine the light and the truth of Jesus Christ into this world. But the Bible describes the, the world as getting worse and worse and worse. There, there's verses about the last days 
And there's just, and we're going to look at that when we look at the premillennial view next time. That's the view we hold here. Um, and times are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. And there's also the verse in Matthew 17, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go, by, go in by it, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so this seems to be in contradiction to their view that the gospel will change the whole world and bring in the kingdom through our, our efforts. It says there are few who find it. Um, so, anyways, next time, uh, come ready for premillennialism. We're going to talk about the rapture, um, the timing of the rapture. There's differences and, and views on the rapture, whether he comes at the beginning of the tribulation, middle of the tribulation, end of the tribulation. Um, we're going to look at what the millennial kingdom is actually like on earth. There's verses that tell us very specifically what this world is going to be like one day. And it's going to be a glorious place, let me tell you. A time of peace and righteousness like we've never seen before. And it's the great hope, and our world is heading towards that time. Um, So we're also going to do a chart activity next time. So I'm going to have you draw out your pre-millennial chart next time. Um, I'm going to do it on a board here, and, uh, and you'll get to do it with me. So that'll be a kind of a nice interactive activity too. Um, if you have questions about this, or if you want to some good resources to study eschatology or the last things or Bible prophecy further, I've got a lot of great suggestions for you. So come talk to me later. And I, I could keep talking until midnight, but I am going to honor my time and end at 8 o'clock tonight. Next week it'll be go from uh, 6 to 8 as well, and we also have a supervised kids' room next week as well. So I'm going to pray and close our time here. I, I hope that this has been uplifting and kind of fun and, and just a time of encouragement and blessing to you as we look at Bible prophecies. And next week, as we get into the timelines and charts of premillennialism, that's just going to be so much fun. At least I think so. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is so precious to us. He is the center of our worship, of our lives. And these scriptures just fill us with joy and hope that he is coming again and that he could come at any time. Lord, we, we don't need to be as concerned about looking out for who the next Antichrist is going to be or for the world tribulation. Lord, we're just looking for Christ. He could return at any moment. And Lord, maybe we be ready and be watchful and looking forward to his return. And may that affect our lives. May we be motivated to service for God. May it give us heavenly priorities. May it, Lord, cause us to have a zeal for the gospel. Um, Lord, may we, next time we take communion, remember that we're remembering Christ's death until he returns. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for the Bible and how much you've told us. We're just so thankful that you've told us so many things um, about the future. And Lord, may we go changed uh, from this moment on. In Jesus' name. Thank you for coming.